This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Welcome to Zealous. I'm your host, Brianna Meyer, and this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. Like usual in the legal profession, unexpected things came up, so we will not be hearing from Max Stevenson this episode. He'll join us next episode, and instead, today, we are going to sit down and talk with partner Raymond DeLasto about Marcy's Law and its effects on constitutional rights of those accused of a crime. Ray is a partner of the firm and is admitted to practice law in both Wisconsin and Illinois. Before going into private practice, he served as legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Wisconsin and was a felony trial attorney and director of the Public Defender's Office in Milwaukee. Ray has had 44 years of practice and hundreds of trials, both criminal and civil. I can't say enough good things about Ray. He's not only brilliant, but he's also caring and thoughtful. He will refer to himself as a brother or father or uncle figure, and it couldn't be more true. Raise someone I will go to for advice not only about work, but about life in general. With all of his experience, there's also no one better to explain the effects of Marcy's Law, a nationwide push for states to incorporate various victims' rights into their constitutions, and a real danger to the constitutional rights of the accused. Well, Ray, as I mentioned in your intro, you've been doing this for 44 years, so you've seen a great array of different laws come into play, different rights get affected. Can you walk us through a little bit the evolution you've seen of victims' rights? Sure. When I started practicing, and it sounds like an old guy, but that was in the 1970s, this was just at what you would call more of the dawn of the current victims' rights movement. I guess as a preface to that, Way back, and you know, me being the historian as well as lawyer, very I'd much like so. To delve into that um, during our colonial and at the time and the revolution and the early part of the United States and our legal history, our criminal justice system was, if you want to call it, victim centered or victim centric, and people could hire someone to investigate and prosecute someone, and uh, it became sort of you could do that not only in civil court, but there would be a criminal prosecution that could be done. People were jailed for not paying debts, yeah. and there was a whole slew of that. In the 19th century, as our constitutional rights and our system developed and into the 20th, it became more, at least in the criminal justice system, that uh, crimes are more uh, social to solve and resolve social harms. Mm-hmm. And so you'll often hear a prosecutor say, I don't represent the victims. I represent the state of Wisconsin. Right. Other states, it'll be the people of the state or whatever. And that's how I was taught in law school mm-hmm. and how um, I began my practice. And then in 1973, a U.S. Supreme Court decision called the Linda R.S. decision came out. And in that case, the court held that a private citizen, in this case involved a non-support uh, prosecution and discrimination Mm -hmm. could not compel the prosecution or non-prosecution of another. And when you say Supreme Court of the the United United States, States, okay, just so we're clear. And uh, after that, uh, victims groups uh, began to uh, 
gel together and said, look, we have no formal legal status. We're the same as a witness or any other person or a provider of evidence in a case, and there should be more. The Supreme Court in the Linda R.S. case said that Congress could enact statutes creating victims' rights, the invasion of which creates standing, even though injury, no injury would exist without the statute. So standing to sue means you have the ability to go into court because you've been aggrieved. And this was the beginning back at that time in the 70s and 80s of the uh, President Nixon's conservative justices doing what we call door-closing decisions, yeah. trying to keep people who are trying to assert uh, constitutional or legal rights and make either out of the courthouse or making it harder for them to get in. Mm -hmm. So after Linda R.S., we began to see, uh, if you want to say, a, a meeting of several strands out in our society. The Law and Order Movement, which was in the 68 election mm -hmm. and again in the 70s. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement and the Feminist Movement. Mm -hmm. When I was in law school uh, and got out of law school in the mid-70s, uh, uh, there had been a concern about uh, women or victims, whether man or woman, mm -hmm. of sexual assault being victimized by the process and uh, being asked questions about prior sexual activity mm -hmm. and history and whatever. Those laws at that time allowed for that when you were defending. So there became a, a, a movement and a number of reforms and Wisconsin was one of the first states to have, I think, a better balance on this. But yeah. as is often the case, and again using the concept of the pendulum and the old uh, wind-up uh, clock in the hallway, uh, the pendulum can sometimes swing too far. And that is, at least from my point of view, what has happened uh, with um, victim rights laws that were enacted very recently, in fact, last year in Wisconsin. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, you mentioned in there the concern about re-victimizing people through talking about past sexual experiences, and it, I think it's important to note that those laws are intact today, and they're called rape shield laws. And That's correct. It's one of the many protections that Wisconsin had in place before this Marcy's Law came to fruition. Correct. And... Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but Wisconsin had very broad rights for victims before Marcy's Law even came into the very picture. Very much so, and Marcy's Law really is what we lawyers sometimes can call surplusage or unnecessary. Uh, beginning in 1979, there were uh, several uh, laws enacted in Wisconsin which uh, created, for example, an award for crime victims, the victims uh, compensation statute, which is chapter 949 of the Wisconsin statutes. Chapter 950 was the rights of victims and witnesses of crimes. That was initiated in 1979 and then in the f first wave or second wave, you could say, I guess, of victims' rights legislation, a constitutional amendment was enacted in Wisconsin, which uh, basically created uh, set, uh, amended Article 11 and created Section uh, M of that. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have a whole raft of victims' rights and protections that exist, which uh, really, we're talking about the right to be treated with dignity and respect. That existed under Wisconsin victim rights right. law prior to 2020. Mm -hmm. The right to be informed about the prosecution, plea offers, court proceedings and sentencing, and to have input with the prosecutor the right to make statements in courts mm -hmm. at the time of the sentencing, 
the right to seek protection from any kind of harassment or harm that might befall you, the right to seek compensation from the victim's rights fund, the right to restitution from the offender. And in Wisconsin, our uh, statute is a very long statute under restitution at sentencing. It's called 973.20 of the statutes. Gives many, many rights to victims to gain, get all kind of, uh, you know, not just simply the loss of property, but mm -hmm. if there is some kind of counseling or treatment needed, hospital bills, funeral expenses, whatever, even coming on actual lost wages. The right to return a personal property and the right to be informed uh, when a uh, defendant is going to be released mm -hmm. uh, from incarceration, whether in prison or in jail. And all of these rights were out there, were strong, and uh, you had a right to have that enforcement and were recognized by uh, the prosecution and the judges in our system. Mm -hmm. We had a system that worked sufficiently and protected victims. Correct. I, I definitely agree with that. And I think what's important to point out, too, is that even as criminal defense attorneys, you know, there is validity to victims' rights, and we're not saying that they should have no rights whatsoever when it comes to a court proceeding. Absolutely not. And you know from our practice that oftentimes we will be representing clients in a criminal uh, case as representing the defendants, meaning mm -hmm. criminal defense lawyers. On other occasions, uh, people at our firm, or even us, may mm -hmm. have clients who have been victims. And we have gone in and advocated for victims' rights on their behalf, whether it's in restitution or trying to get a separate um, either lawsuit or claim made to get compensation. We've helped people with victim mm -hmm. compensation award requests, etc. So, uh, you know, what you are one day as a criminal defense lawyer, um, if you have a practice that is a bit broader, mm -hmm. then you will represent victims, and this is important. And then that brings us to... Mm. To Marcy's Law, yeah. So, you know, I obviously have not been practicing nearly as long as you, but I was practicing for a substantial amount of time before Marcy's Law was enacted. And Marcy's Law is this national movement that came in, and we'll get into the weeds of it, but the change that I have seen just in the past year is astounding, for lack of a better word. I agree. It's very dramatic, and this is not just because of the COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. which has had an impact. But uh, let me be blunt. Because Please. Marcy's Law has come in now and has tipped the balance and has, is ignoring the constitutional rights of uh, people who are accused of a crime, including the presumption of innocence mm -hmm. until you're actually proven beyond a reasonable doubt and a judge convicted of a it's tipped that balance away from this. Prosecutors and judges are running scared. And it's palpable. You hear them talk about it. Well, we have to acknowledge Marcy's law. We have to do this. The victim and uh, this concept of, of victim has uh, been far broadened beyond uh, what it was before. Mm -hmm. uh, a complainant, a person who has been injured, a person who has been... Uh, had something stolen from them. That's fine. They can be a victim, but the breadth of the definition has been broadened beyond. Judges are now looking over their shoulders, and you and I have been in cases in mm -hmm. the last six to ten months where we've seen the judges reflect on the record, and it's like they have to look over their shoulder. They're afraid of, is somebody going to be looking 
uh, is the victim or the victim's family's mm -hmm. lawyer uh, going to be criticizing the judge? Are they going to be afraid of being jumped on in the press right. because of this kind of publicity? And that's not a strong justice system, whether it's criminal or civil, when someone is holding their finger to the wind of, oh, we want to avoid adverse publicity. And the same holds true, I fear, for uh, prosecutors' right. offices, that they are running scared, that believe the victims are calling the shots and running the show, right. rather than whether the prosecutor has a valid case and can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt to exercise that independent discretion that our justice system requires. Right, and Ray, we've talked about this umpteen times off air, but it feels like, from our perspective, that prosecutors now, instead of being lawyers for the state, they have more of an air of lawyers for the victim. Yeah, I think, and uh, not more of an air, they are concerned, they have to mm -hmm. run through a litany, and the judge does, uh, right. we'll have, you uh, had a chance to speak, uh, Mr. So-and-so, mm -hmm. have you anything else to say, Ms. So-and-so, about this? Yeah. I think what this Marcy's Law has done is not established or strengthened victims' rights per se, but is an attempt to go back to this victim-centric, if you want to call approach that we had, uh, private justice, yeah. private criminal justice mm -hmm. that was existent before the 19th century in our country, and that's not good for our system. And, uh, and Marcy's Law, again, was not some popular rise in uh, getting victims' rights like we saw in mm -hmm. the 70s and in the early 80s, but in fact was promoted by a billionaire who lives yeah. in California whose sister unfortunately was killed by uh, a boyfriend back in the 1980s, and he began devoting uh, many tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get a cookie-cutter approach of legislation that would uh, tip the balance uh, and, and undo the balance of uh, the rights of criminal defendants and who can be any of us. And a criminal case can be a drunk driving second, it can be mm -hmm. a disorderly conduct, it can be a, a theft, it can be a vandalism, a mm -hmm. homicide, whatever. And this group has gone around with a cookie cutter legislation to get on before legislators and have them rapidly get approved a constitutional amendment mm -hmm. and they've been successful in a number of states. Yeah. They targeted Wisconsin and beginning in 2018, 2017, 18, 19 mm -hmm. and were able to ram through the legislature with virtually no debate, no mm -hmm. public hearings around the state, uh, the constitutional amendment to get it onto the ballot. And it right. was placed on our ballot in April of 2020. Mm -hmm. It was. It was. And so uh, let's break it down a little bit further even. You know, what does Marcy's Law change about Wisconsin's law? Where is the differences that people can see? Well, what first of all, and I think it's, uh, there has been, we can talk about that, uh, it, the actual ballot question that was uh, put to the voters. And yeah, let's go you, through that. We should go through that. Mm -hmm. Was additional rights of crime victims. Shall Section 9M of Article 1 of the Constitution, uh, and I think I mentioned 11 earlier, it's Section 9M of Article mm -hmm. 1. It says, shall uh, Section 9M of Article 1 of the Constitution, which gives certain rights to crime victims, be amended to give crime victims additional rights. 
to require the rights of crime victims be protected with equal force through the protections afforded the accused while leaving the federal constitutional rights of the accused intact and to allow crime victims to enforce their rights in court. Okay, the old Section 9M was about, when I say old, I mean prior to April of mm -hmm. 2020, 11 lines. Out of this simple ballot question, there's now 64 lines of text, right. full lines, single space in Section 9M of our Constitution mm -hmm. that uh, not only that take away the rights of criminal defendants um, and make it not that they should be equal or vigorous, the victim's rights be co-equal with it, but in fact they have taken away rights. For example, to have sequestration of people. Right. Okay? Uh, sequestration of, of victims means a court would say, well, we'll order, and parties typically do this in civil or criminal cases, we'll not want to have all of the witnesses uh, present in court to hear the testimony of other witnesses, so that could cause them to blend and skew their testimony. And that, uh, so courts will readily, and the state statutes allow for that. Now, under this law, courts are overly solicitous and are letting people who will be not just the immediate victim, but their families and others who may be uh, there and supporters be able to be in court, including people who will testify. It's uh, later on in the case. And this is not good for the quality of justice that occurs. I think a common misconception with people that don't practice in criminal law, be it other lawyers or even non-lawyers, the common misconception from the ballot question is that, oh, well, do we want to give victims more rights and protect them? Yes, but what's not understood is that it diminishes defendants' rights. Exactly. And those rights that, your due process rights, you've heard about that, your right to a fair trial, your right to have a jury uh, hear evidence that pertains to that fact, and uh, not have witnesses who are skewed or scripted mm -hmm. and to follow and listen uh, like that. The due process rights have been upended. The presumption of innocence that is granted to a person charged with a crime, mm -hmm. okay? And they are not a convicted defendant until they are actually are found guilty and convicted. Mm -hmm. Now it says Marcy's Law gives rights to victims at the outset of the criminal proceedings rather than once there has been a finding later Correct. on that, uh, that in fact what the person who's the complaining witness slash victim mm -hmm. uh, said was really believed by the jury. Until that jury says that or until there has been a change of plea and an admission by the defendant, mm -hmm. it's simply an allegation. Right. Uh, just like in a civil complaint that you did X and Y, that's negligent and I've been damaged and you owe me a million dollars. Well, you can make any claim you want, but until it's proven in court and by actual evidence and facts, what it doesn't have the same balance as the rights of those who are uh, on trial. What this does, Marcy's Laws, moves it forward and basically gives victims a say in the process before the crime's been established or the person convicted. Mm -hmm. It's, as I said, unnecessary, Marcy's Law and what it's done, because we have ample uh, protections uh, for victims already on the books. And it promotes a false equivalency of co-equal rights for victims and the accused. Correct. Our Constitution, uh, when it was enacted in 1787, the framers at that time realized that there had to be protection of individual rights from the actions of the government.
Okay, and that's why we have the Bill of Rights. Right. And the Bill of Rights, our First Amendment free mm -hmm. speech, uh, right to assemble and petition our uh, uh, political uh, leaders, our uh, Second Amendment right to bear arms, the Fourth Amendment right, very important, privacy, the mm -hmm. need for a search warrant, and the Fifth Amendment, which talks about your right to due process, among other rights, and to have a fair trial. We lawyers who have pushed for constitutional rights understand that the danger to individual rights is government overreaching. But now you have the prosecutors often becoming the private lawyer, uh, not in name, but really, I, I won't want to call it hand puppets, but sometimes I'm telling you, mm -hmm. when you're in court, it seems that they are the hand puppets of the victim and what the right. victim wants. And this is not to say that prosecutors are choosing to do this. They have to do this under law. They have law. to do that under the Marcy's Law, uh, not the, what was on the ballot and what voters thought they were getting, mm -hmm. but in all of these 64 other lines and then in the various changes to statutes that it's caused this domino effect that's gone throughout. Prosecutors can be uh, criminally charged, can be fined if they don't acknowledge these rights. Now understand, in our previous uh, victim rights laws, prosecutors had a duty mm -hmm. and that was and consequence if they would not follow through on that. So there wasn't a problem that needed solving. Right. Marcy's law is an individual's idea, this, uh, the California billionaire, but set Mr. Nicholas aside, the originator and funder of Marcy's Law. I think this is an example of a dangerous trend that's happened, again, since the early 70s, where you have this kind of cookie-cutter legislation mm -hmm. that is drafted and promoted by conservatives from the 1960s, Goldwater Movement, and then in the 70s under the Nixon administration and later under the Reagan administration, to basically go out and undermine any regulation of job safety, of environmental protection, to try to undermine unions. Many representatives in the Wisconsin legislature have, uh, are members of ALEC and mm -hmm. go to the ALEC conventions and interact with them and don't want to share uh, when open records requests are asked by the media or other public interest groups, what have you learned from these this ALEC, mm -hmm. who is the one that is actually feeding you uh, the legislation. Marcy's Law was fed on a platter to the Wisconsin mm -hmm. legislature to ram it through and then get it on the ballot. Yep, and I think now more than ever with widespread misinformation and with the ability to simply, you know, put on your Instagram story what your thoughts are and, and a lot of times what your uneducated thoughts are about a topic, there's a real threat of cancel culture reaching politicians and politicians are scared and i think that this is a prime topic because when you phrase it as it was phrased on the ballot well shouldn't crime victims have rights if it's that simple sure it's not that simple and people fail to realize that well they fail to realize it and this was sold by a uh media storm that was mm -hmm. paid for by Mr. Nicholas and his supporters. And Kelsey Grammer. Right, mm -hmm. Kelsey Grammer on, well, what did he know? I didn't know Kelsey lived in Wisconsin. And what does Mr. Nicholas in California know about Wisconsin? This was not homegrown. There wasn't a problem. There wasn't a need. Mm -hmm. But this is an idea that uh, of an individual backed by certain uh, special interest groups who are hidden and not feeding it money, mm -hmm. not to promote 
real victims' rights, but to basically upend our constitutional balance, which again was set up back in the 1780s and 90s mm -hmm. to protect individuals from government overreach, to protect people who become defendants in state of Wisconsin mm -hmm. versus my name or United States of America versus my name. Yeah. That's not what should happen. Yeah. And it was challenged. Yeah, and well, let's talk first about the, the challenge and then I just kind of have a general sure. overthought, but let's talk about Judge Remington in Dane yeah. County. What happened afterwards, there is a group uh, uh, that was formed called the Wisconsin Justice Initiative, filed a lawsuit um, against the Wisconsin Election Commission and uh, the Secretary of State uh, and the Attorney General in their official capacities to challenge how the ballot question that was presented to voters among mm -hmm. us, millions of dollars of outside money coming into Wisconsin outside money and media coverage mm -hmm. of this um, to fool Wisconsin voters into believing that, oh, this is something we need, and number two, it doesn't hurt their rights. Wisconsin voters are far worse off after the passage of Marcy's Law if they or their children or their spouses or family members run afoul of the law, whether it's a drunk driving ticket, uh, operating while suspended, a misdemeanor, mm -hmm. a juvenile court case, uh, or any other kind of criminal charge. Mm -hmm. Okay, in the co circuit court, and Judge Frank Remington was a very uh, honorable and knowledgeable judge in Madison um, uh, on the circuit court bench, uh, heard the legal sufficiency of the referendum question. And the ballot question was described as giving crime victims additional rights, and I've read it to you before, mm -hmm. requiring the rights of tr crime victims to be protected with equal force to the protections afforded the accused, while leaving those rights intact for the accused. It did not mention that any of the changes were being made to the language of the Wisconsin Constitution that protected the rights of the accused. Remember that 11 single-space lines mm -hmm. becoming 64, and also deletions and undermining of mm -hmm. those uh, fundamental constitutional rights that have been in our state constitution since the 1848 and thereafter and are in the United States Constitution. So a lot of what Marcy's Law does is contrary and undermines constitutional rights that you have and are protected by the United States Constitution, which sets up a whole battle now that defend people charged with crimes are gonna have to fight just to get acknowledged in court what has been acknowledged for 30, 40, 60 years or more. Mm -hmm. This, Judge Remington recognized that by striking the existing provisions of the Constitution that prevented the rights of the accused from being limited, the Marcy's Law question not only expanded crime victims' rights, but also reduced the rights and protections provided by the Wisconsin Constitution to the accused. And it did so in a stealth mode. Mm -hmm. It came in under the covers. People didn't realize it was doing it. It's not sold at that. It's to help victims. It's to help children to help uh, battered women, whoever. Who wouldn't be in favor of that, except this was a wolf in sheep's clothing? The question Judge Fremington found failed to inform voters, this is the ballot question mm -hmm. that we voted on last April in 2020, failed to inform voters that the amendments would strike provisions of the Constitution that protect the rights of accused. It stated that the amendments would require the rights of crime victims to be protected with equal force when the amendment instead required victims' rights protected no less vigorous than the protections informed 
afforded the accused. Well, the victim is not going to go to jail or is not on mm -hmm. trial and doesn't face a dire consequence if they're found guilty. How can you say that their rights are equal and uh, have to be enforced no less vigorously when the person who's on trial? That's absurd. This is not a civil case where it's uh, Ray DeLasto versus the Ford Motor Company or mm -hmm. versus an individual who hit my vehicle. Even uh, versus Bree Meyer. Or Bree yeah. Meyer, yeah. The question also, Judge Remington found, the ballot question, failed to meet the every essential test and contained misstatements regarding the contents of the amendment and was ambiguous and misleading. Judge Remington found uh, that and found that the ballot question was improper and violated Article 12 of the Wisconsin Constitution. He stayed at that time uh, the effect of it to allow the state to appeal and in December of 2020, um, the Attorney General Call filed an appeal and it's now pending before District 3 of the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. The issues that are presented to, on appeal are whether more than one ballot question was required to present the amendments to the voters under Wisconsin Constitution Article 12. And Judge Remington answered yes. I think the law is clear that it's yes as well. The second question is whether that ballot question met the requirements to clearly and accurately reference all of the essentials of the amendment and not mislead voters. Judge Remington found that the ballot question violated uh, that Article 12 because it did not clearly reference all the essentials and was misleading. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to now remedy that by appeal. So hopefully District 3 will affirm Judge Remington, but I'll guarantee you if it does, this case is going to the Wisconsin Supreme Court right. where we have uh, a uh, probable 4-3 to three majority who will uh, uphold the Marcy's Law ballot question. Probable, but Justice Hagedorn, who was elected um, two terms, uh, I guess two elections right. ago on the Supreme Court, just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And Justice Hagedorn had surprisingly become somewhat of a swing voter on a few important constitutional questions. So it will be clear to see whether he will be one of the swing votes and maybe side with uh, the three who are not of the rigid, hard right mm -hmm. uh, conservative majority on the state Supreme Court now. Or maybe there even be a split among the conservatives and the other justices right. if they are true and want to follow the Constitution. And the Supreme Court will be deciding whether Article 12 of our Constitution that governs how ballot questions are put before voters really has any meaning or can we twist it to allow a misstatement and to allow multiple questions in a, a vote and basically this wolf in sheep's clothing type of um, ballot measure to be put before the voters again. And if they uphold uh, the requirements of Article 12 in the Constitution, I think they will affirm what Judge Remington did. But it's going to be mighty close. Agreed. And I think one thing that you hit on, and it was something that I was thinking of when we were discussing, you know, what are we going to talk about on your episode, Ray? And right. I was reflecting and, and thinking about when people, and it happens a lot in our line of business, come up to us and say, you know, why should defendants have these rights? Why should victims' rights not be more important? And, you know, what it 
comes back to for me is that the three basic rights in our Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. When you are a defendant, and I know understandably sometimes it's hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that it could be them in this position, all three of those are at risk. And that is why defendants' rights are so important. Exactly. And the victim's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not at risk, are not even part of the criminal uh, process. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, So they have protections and they should have protections. But at the same time, the prosecutor should not be affording a sort of a legal aid free lawyer for uh, the victims or for people who want to grind an axe uh, against mm -hmm. others. And until, and Marcy's Law tips the balance, so it very much seems that way now. Mm -hmm. And once again, while Judge Remington ruled that the Marcy's Law ballot question was improper and therefore Marcy's Law was not validly enacted, he stayed the effect of that ruling, which means Marcy's Law is the law right now, is being followed, mm -hmm. and judges and prosecutors, every time I'm in court with them, are looking over their shoulders, are being running down a litany, oh, mm -hmm. are we pleasing you? Are you happy with how things right. are going forward in this case? No judge does that in any civil case that right. I've ever been involved in in 44 years. No judge did this in criminal cases that I've been involved mm -hmm. with in my 44 years. And no judge did before or does now ask if the criminal defendant is feeling okay or if they mm -hmm. have any more questions or whatever else, except in certain proceedings where the judge has a duty to ascertain mm -hmm. whether, not the feelings of the defendant, but whether the defendant understands what is going on. Mm -hmm. Whether the defendant, let's say, in a guilty plea or no contest plea, yeah. whether their plea and change of plea is freely and voluntarily done, whether they have any questions of the court or their lawyer. Mm -hmm. And that's the appropriate questions that should be made at that appropriate time. But right now, it's each and every time you're in court, even if it's for a scheduling conference. Right. It's ridiculous. Marcy's Law makes the system unfair to people who are accused of crimes. Bottom line, that's all it does. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help victims' rights. It muddies things, and it's going to, I think, uh, also allow for uh, increased uh, uh, activity on the part of victims who are going to want, and their families, mm -hmm. to try to no, put the camel's nose under the tent. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be, and I've seen in some cases, an increase in what they call ex parte. That's a Latin term meaning that one person, one side is writing to the judge, not telling the judge, or if they see the judge on the street, they want to talk to the judge about what's going on, mm -hmm. or want to talk to the prosecutor. This kind of ex parte conduct under our legal ethics code is inappropriate. A judge, if they hear from one side, again, should stop mm -hmm. any kind of overture, if that is, and should present that letter, present what was said to both parties, to the defendant uh, and her lawyer, to the prosecutor, uh, and then say, I'm not going to do this anymore. We're not going to hear about mm -hmm. this. I can't do this. Well, Marcy's Law is going to, I think, encourage people to try to do an end run around yeah. the ethics code, do an end run around proper practices, and I'm seeing it happen. And the judges got to stand strong and not put their political future ahead of, uh, you know, what their constitutional uh, duty and their oath of office means. Agreed. And 
I think the scariest part for me as a pr practitioner, Ray, is, you know, we have the jobs that we have because unfortunately people lie. And if we lived in a perfect world where no one lied about being victim of a crime, I would much prefer that, but we do not live in that world. And the scariest part to me is that Marcy's Law allows someone that unfortunately is fabricating or exaggerating what happened to continuously push it and to spread it. And that is so dangerous to everyone's rights, most importantly, the defendant. Absolutely. Marcy's Law is sort of an equivalent, if you want to use that, to uh, Snapchat or other social media gossip mongering and trying to uh, influence potential jurors in a case, trying to influence the judge, even before a trial, trying to do this end run or quick uh, shortcut to get what an individual wants. And people, as you just pointed out, Bree, for various reasons, mm -hmm. can either see the wrong thing or can clearly out and out, and I've had this happen many times over my 44 mm -hmm. years, make uh, improper uh, we'll make unreasonable, uh, we'll make allegations that are completely fabricated and untrue to mm -hmm. try to hurt someone else or trying to gain an advantage or cut them off. And they'll maintain that. And this now, instead of having our criminal justice system and legal system be a proper filter to make sure you separate that chaff from the wheat to make sure only what is really true evidence and really what is a true violation of the law gets prosecuted, you're going to have a lot more uh, prosecutions for things that shouldn't be going forward, right. which is going to hurt everybody. And it's going to raise a great cost uh, to the taxpayers because our legal system is going to be further uh, overburdened by this. It's time for the definition of the day. Today we are talking about motion practice. Ray, what, what even is motion practice? Well, people often have that uh, little saying, oh, he's just going through the motions, and meaning <laughs> that that really doesn't mean he's or she's really involved into it. Mm -hmm. In the law, it's the contrary. And what a motion really is is an application or request to a court in a criminal case made by either the prosecutor or the defense attorney that requests that the court make a decision on a certain issue before the trial begins, if it's what we call a pretrial motion. Mm -hmm. The motion can affect the trial, can affect how the courtroom is operated, the defendants, the witnesses, the evidence, or the testimony. When you have a motion hearing, uh, typically it will be, of course, before the judge, uh, will not be before a jury, uh, even if a jury trial is ongoing, and uh, you'll have the lawyers doing all the talking. Mm -hmm. It will be the prosecutor for the government, whether that's the state of Wisconsin or the United States government, if you're in federal court, and the defense lawyer. The defendant, though, the individual whose freedom uh, and uh, future is at risk and is at stake, uh, needs to be present in court. There can be motions brought during trial. There may be a motion for a theory of defense instruction. There may be a motion for a mistrial. You've heard about that because uh, one side feels the other side has gone too far, either in violating mm -hmm. uh, a previous court order on presentations of witnesses or violating the sequestration order or whatever. 
And then there can be also motions brought for a new trial after the jury has spoken uh, and uh, post-conviction motions which can be uh, challenging the sentence of a judge mm -hmm. or asking for a new trial later on after conviction. Yeah. So motions are the request of the court to do something uh, in favor of the side that you represent. Yeah. If you're the plaintiff or the prosecutor, uh, you want it to help the government's case. And if you're a defendant, you want it to help uh, or give the your client, the defendant, a fair shake at trial. Let's play Please Advise. I'm going to read you a couple of hypothetical scenarios, and I want you to let me know some, some quick advice that you would give out. Sure. Scenario number one. I was DD for my friend's one night out. Admittedly, I was not totally sober. While driving home, I was passing through a controlled intersection. I was traveling under the speed limit and exhibited no signs of being intoxicated. As I was going north through a green light, a car traveling west came out of nowhere, blew through the red light, and hit my car. The police came and my BAC tested 0.14, well above the legal limit. The other driver had no alcohol in their system. A passenger from each car died. Who's at fault for the deaths? In a civil context, both drivers are at fault. In a criminal sense, while both drivers are at fault under Wisconsin law because you who were the designated driver or DD in the car and you tested 0.14, you will be the person who is most at fault criminally and because someone died either in your vehicle or in the other vehicle or in this situation and scenario in both, you are considered criminally responsible for causing their deaths under our um, uh, drunk driving laws in Chapter 940. And I have tried and handled a number of these cases around the state over the years, and this law is really a bear trap. Mm -hmm. And there is, within the drunk driving uh, causing serious injury or causing death law, what is called an affirmative defense. And that affirmative defense says that you would be able to present to the jury evidence that the accident would have occurred regardless of the alcohol consumption. In other words, I had the right of way, I was going through the, uh, was keeping a lookout, was mm -hmm. going through the intersection, and suddenly this guy blows the light, the other driver T-bones me and kills the person in my car. I'm not, it's not my fault, okay, uh, that these people died and alcohol really is uh, irrelevant at this point. This affirmative defense has to be though proven by the defendant. Alright, scenario number two. My uncle, who is incarcerated, was told by another inmate that he should file a federal lawsuit against the prison and the prison's doctor because he was not seen immediately for a migraine. Is a federal lawsuit a viable option? People can file a lawsuit over anything, uh, whether it has merit or not, whether it's frivolous or not. Uh, the question is, in the context that, uh, of the fact situation you talked about, the uncle is in prison, okay? There is, as a result of prisoners filing claims and lawsuits um, in the 1980s, 90s, and into this century, 
a uh, number of restrictive laws have been passed, one called the PLRA, or Prison Litigation Reform Act. Well, whenever they say they're reforming uh, prison and this and that, and your rights in prison, no, that means they're cutting out the rights. Mm -hmm. right? And in this situation, the law requires, before you would file a federal lawsuit or a lawsuit in state court for a violation of your civil rights, that you must first exhaust your administrative remedies. So within the Wisconsin Department of Corrections and in the various institutions, you can file a grievance, a complaint that can go up and be considered. And if you've done that and you haven't gotten satisfaction for what has occurred and you feel how your rights uh, or, or conditions or a law was violated, then you can bring a separate state court action. You also could file an action in federal court and even in state court under a federal law. And it's called Title 42 of the United States Code, Section 1983. And in a 1983 case, um, you will be alleging that your constitutional right here, your right to be receive medical treatment uh, and not to be subject to cruel and unusual punishment, was violated. Well, there's a whole slew, and I have uh, half a bookshelf on uh, civil rights law and a lot more from when I was ACLU legal director mm -hmm. here some decades ago. Uh, the law has become pretty restrictive on uh, the type of uh, basis, legal mm -hmm. basis and factual basis they'll allow for a 1983 claim to be upheld. In this case, for a simple migraine or a bad headache, no. I had a case for where a guy's tooth was broken out when he spit into a rock that was in the food that he was served mm -hmm. at a county jail. He was a uh, federal prisoner there. He brought the action, and the court asked if I would be appointed to represent him. Well, the law is not good for inmates. However, if your uncle uh, was suffering from chronic migraines or was suffering from a condition that was not being adequately taken care mm -hmm. of and exhausted those remedies, asked to have to see the jail nurse, asked mm -hmm. to see the doctor, asked to have an exam, and this wasn't done, that could rise to the level of uh, cognizable uh, Section 1983 claim. So it's the amount of injury and amount of damage, not just a simple thing. Some prisoners say, well, my television was lost. You can have a small 4 by 4 television, mm -hmm. or you may have my uh, certain piece of clothing was lost or whatever. Well, uh, by and large, those claims will be thrown out if you file either a state or federal court action. You've got to exhaust the administrative remedy first. Great. Last scenario. My grandma is convinced that the nursing home employees are conspiring to offer her a sacrifice to aliens. Can she sue them? Once again, and maybe it's because I've gotten so many of these issues over the years uh, since I was with the ACLU mm -hmm. years ago, um, yeah, there are a number of people who have uh, beliefs, and we see uh, beliefs that uh, a few years ago we'd call crazy are now called the QAnon, and mm -hmm. politicians are spouting them, spouting lies, spouting unrealities. Uh, is it aliens uh, taking over the nursing home? Is it, uh, am I going to be a sacrifice? Am I getting transmissions? Is the FBI monitoring me? And I can hear them in my head. Uh, this is indicative to me as a longtime practitioner that the individual has some mental health issues. So if 
the grandma came to us mm -hmm. or contacted us, uh, either directly or through the family, I'd want to talk with her a bit, and I would not, uh, as a matter of just being a kind, mm -hmm. and, uh, not disrespectful lawyer, I would uh, ask to want to uh, get authorization so we could, uh, you know, talk about uh, what's happened, part of our investigation, and talk with her health care provider. And if this type of uh, ideation or, uh, if you want to call it fantasy mm -hmm. or whatever, has been standing or long-standing for a while, well, then that's indicative of a mental health question and a concern, and maybe that can be addressed. Can she sue someone? Yes, that lawsuit would mm -hmm. be thrown out. And if she did sue in this context, she might have a reverse. If she's, um, maybe they might even want to do a mental health commitment on her. Which so is that not might what make you it want. Worse yes. on the frying pan into the fire. So I would say don't sue, talk to a lawyer, and the lawyer should be respectful because this probably is a red flag for a mental health condition. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for sitting down and talking with us. I think there is absolutely no question that you are a wealth of knowledge, and I think that hopefully our listeners learned a lot about what is going on in Wisconsin with victims' rights and the disastrous impact it's had on the court system in general. Thank you, Bree. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Kieran, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. Tune in to our next regularly scheduled episode where we will talk with Max Stevenson about communications during a divorce and also look for a bonus episode coming your way next week. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode of Zealous.